survey of over 6,000 adults in the United States revealed that one in 10 people over 18 owns a modern activity tracker, aka wearable, such as Jawbone, Fitbit, Nike Fuel Band, or others. Yet, more than half of the survey's respondents said they no longer use their activity tracker, and a third of them stopped using their wearable within six months of receiving it. But you would think with all the power that we have right now with sensor technology and tracking software that there must be someone out there who's figured out a way to use the data to create a more optimal life and better health for themselves. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Chris Dancy. He's been called the most connected man in the world. He earned that name by using over 700 sensors, devices, applications, and services to track, analyze, and optimize his life from his calorie intake to his spiritual well-being. And this quantification has enabled him to see the connections of otherwise invisible data, things that happen in our lives, but we're not aware enough to draw the connections, to make the connections, to see the patterns. And as a result of Chris's exploration with technology and tracking and and data, he's made dramatic upgrades to his health, productivity, and quality of life. In fact, he's lost over 100 pounds using technology to optimize his life. But there's a dark side to using all this technology. In fact, Chris is part of the new docu-series on Showtime called Darknet that looks at how technology is negatively impacting our lives. And that's what Chris is here today to talk about, the positives of technology and how Chris has used it to improve his life, but also the caution that we should take in using technology and sharing our data with people who may not have our best interests in mind. This is a fascinating episode. So without further ado, please enjoy the interview with Chris Dancy. Chris Dancy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on, Ted. My pleasure, because I found your story after hearing about you in another TED Talk, then I watched your TED Talk. And Chris, you've been called the most connected human on earth. You've been in leadership roles in, at the intersection of technology and healthcare for the past 25 years. You've been featured on the cover of Business Week's Global Tech Issue. You have this great story and about how you lost weight using all these sensors and tracking technology. You're also being featured in Showtime's new docu-series, Darknet, about the dark side of how technology affects our lives. Man, what do you say when people ask you, Chris, nice to meet you, what do you do? (laughs) I actually, that's the hardest question I get. Most of the time I just say I develop software and then every now and then I'll say I speak, I'm a speaker. By my druthers, I just say I'm a mindful cyborg, but that usually invokes too many questions. <laughs> a mindful cyborg. Yeah, you also have a podcast called Mindful Cyborgs. Yeah, I do. It's something I started about three years ago with Clint and Sarah. Clint well, Finley from Wired and Sarah Watson from the Berkman Center at Harvard for Internet and Society. So it's, it's just a little thing we really like doing about, about technology and contemplation. Yeah, and Chris, I've given a little bit of background about you and and some of your accomplishments and accolades, but can you talk to people about what you do now and then the story of how you got here? Sure. So currently I'm in the middle of working on a book and uh, I just finished a special for Showtime and we're doing some promotion around that. I have some software that I've been working on for about a year. Uh, So outside of that, that keeps, and then I speak. So that keeps me super, super busy. What led me here? 1990, I was, you know, just out of school and starting on a help desk. And there seemed to me to be this real lack of understanding between what people wanted to do with technology and what technology was capable of. So I quickly became pretty skilled at supporting people, you know, kind of geek squad before geek squad. 
And that just led to a series of roles. I was an early employee at WebMD in the 90s in healthcare. So that just led to a series of roles where I became more and more attuned to understanding, kind of and anticipating what people were wanting and needing. In the early 2000s, I moved over to SQL databases and started doing more queries and database management. I was basically a database administrator. In the mid-2000s, I moved more into leadership, kind of executive, kind of salesy roles. 2008 came, the economy crashed. My life was terrible. This is kind of where most people pick up in the story. I was cotton kind of pretty heavy. I was drinking about 30 cans of Diet Coke a day, smoking two packs of cigarettes. Uh, it was crazy. I was angry all the time. Was, life was bad, and I'd just been laid off, and I was making a ton of money, so what was I going to do? So that's when I started collecting information. It wasn't about till 2000, and we'll get to that, I guess, in the show, but it wasn't about 2010 that I kind of crawled back out onto dry land and realized that there was a serious skills gap in what was happening with technology. So I just started helping come up some of the bigger enterprise companies in Silicon Valley in between 2010 and 2012. And then, of course, you know, I got mentioned in the media and the rest is, you know, I tongue-in-cheek say Christery. Yeah. You're known as the most connected human on earth. Why do people call you that? It started out with a Bloomberg interview uh, three or four years ago. It was a video interview with them. I'd lost about 70 pounds at that point, which was a milestone. And it... it I can't remember the reporter's name. He's amazing, amazingly kind man. And he said, you're like the world's most surveilled person. And that's how they build the story. So if you go back and watch the Bloomberg video, it's, you know, all over the place. That's how they build it. And it was funny because then like six or seven months later, I did an interview for someone and they picked up on that, except they didn't say surveilled. They said connected. And it just kind of grew a life of its own. And you know, at this point, I just tell people when they meet me, because they never remember names, right? So I say, just Google most connected man, and they do, and then they find me. Yeah. And you have a wild story. Yeah, I, I believe I watched that video because I've watched, when I first heard about you in that one TED Talk, I went on to watch one of your keynotes. I watched the Mashable video. Uh, that was pretty funny. It showed your house, which is like a smart home. You have it wired in to optimize your living environment. And it showed you with Google glasses and all these sensors on you. And then I learned that one of the reasons why they call you that is because you used up to like 700 sensors, devices, applications, services to track, analyze, and, and kind of optimize your life through the data that you're getting from these technologies that you're using. Can you talk about, now you said, okay, you were in a really bad place and then you started losing the weight, but you could have hired a trainer. You could have started counting calories. <laughs> and of course, you've got an IT background. I get it. But how come you went so deep? What, what started you to go so deep with technology and to use like all these 700 devices? Yeah. I did have a trainer and I did try to eat well. The problem is I can only see my trainer like when my trainer had time and shitty food. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I swear. Um, crappy food was easy to find. So... You know, I would have had to move in with someone, you know, and reality TV shows for fat people weren't, 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 were just coming into vogue. So that wasn't an option. I, you know, for me, I just realized that a lot of my behavior, whether it was, you know, where I was eating and when I was eating was invisible to me. Yet my smartphone at the time knew everything. It knew where I was spending money, who I was spending money with, you know, what I was doing when I was there, how active I was, how, was, how active I wasn't. And it just became obvious to me that I could have like a full time biological GPS if I were to somehow frack the information out of my phone. Yeah. What did you learn from doing that, though? Because were you counting calories? Oh, wow. Well, in the beginning, it was much simpler than that. I mean, I found that I was just spending an inordinate amount of time on in social media accounts, like from the time I awoke till early afternoon when I had my first meal. So just some of the earliest hacks in the beginning were just if I wanted to get up and check Twitter or get up and check Facebook or MySpace or whatever I was on, I don't remember, that I just had to move. So I just made it a rule that I couldn't use my phone unless I was moving. And then like the second hack I did was like I couldn't have food that was under $10 if I didn't walk to it. So what I found was like really cheap food was easy for me to find and close. So I had to make it hard to get to. So I couldn't drive the mile. I had to walk the mile. So in the beginning, it was really simple behavioral just analysis stuff of like how I was spending my time. 
in ways that could do the same behavior without making the commitment, if that makes sense. So yeah, I could still eat McDonald's. I just, it was like three miles. And like the crappier the food got, the further away it was. And I finally bought a bike because I really wanted Chipotle. Um, <laughs> and Chipotle was like six miles away. And that was too far to walk and get back in time for my lunch break. Yeah. And I'll tell you why I'm fascinated about this, Chris, because I've been in the, the fitness industry for the past 17 years. And the fitness industry is a complete failure. The people who resonate the most with what the messages that come from the leaders in fitness, if you will, it's like, hey, work out hard, workout's great. You know, you burn calories, you got to push yourself, you got to go beast mode. And there are a certain percentage of people who resonate with that, but it's like 5% or 10%, if that. The rest of the people, the people who need to change their behavior the most. And and that's what it comes down to because people know what they should and shouldn't eat to a degree. They know that they should be moving more and perhaps even exercising, but they're not doing it. And one of the things that fascinated me about your story, Chris, is that instead, although you said you hired a trainer and all the other things that you did that were more of a traditional approach to getting in shape and getting that area of your life handled, you started using wearable technology, tracking technology, and use the data you gathered from that, not only to get yourself into better health, but to optimize your environment at home mm. to just change your behavior. Mm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, there was a subway that I used to like to walk to, you know, and I didn't even eat vegetables. I mean, I was, you know... 40 and like I never even had anything that I never had an orange. It's like crazy. But, but you know, a good example is there was a subway I really liked a lot, but I always noticed I ate really crappy after I ate at the self subway. It was like that afternoon I would always just like just pay less attention to my behavior. So I thought, well, what is it about the subway? You know, and I started just, like, switching sandwiches. Well, then one day I was sitting there and the booth I was normally in because it was close to a road wasn't available. And I had to sit close to kind of the middle of the restaurant. And I just became really aware that there was something different about this restaurant. I could see it all of a sudden. So I started thinking, well, what could it be? So, you know, was it the more people? And it turned out that it was super bright. Just the way the light came in from the window and the fluorescent lights they used in back. So I thought, I wonder if light's affecting the way I'm eating. So I started just using simple light apps that camera people use to figure out how bright things are when they're shooting scenes to figure out, just when I ate, what was the brightness and how did I eat and when did I eat and how fast, you know, did I finish quickly? And it turned out that I was eating in brighter spaces faster, which led me to start measuring noise in environments. Was noise affecting how I eating? Was I making poor choices in noisy environments? Was I making poor choices where there were menus versus where I stood in line? So a lot of the environmental hacks just came early just by paying careful attention to, wait, this worked and now it's not. So what's different about this place? And you know, I say in my the one little TEDx talk that I did that so often we think the world, you know, that we're broken and it's not us at all. It's the world. And I wish more people talked about that. We're pretty much OK. And it's the stuff we get put into that's hard. I actually do talk about that. And I'd love to get into that a bit later because we were talking before we hopped on about Jason Silva or guys and guys like him who are very optimistic. They're techno optimists. And then there's people like Douglas Rushkoff and uh, I believe Tara Swart, who's a neuroscientist, who's also done a TED Talk. She actually did one recently on technology and how it affects us in a negative way. So there's these two camps, the optimists and, and the people who are very wary. I'd love to get into that a little bit later, but I also want to ask you right now because people are just finding out about the wearables and... I think it's starting to dawn on people like, hey, we can start tracking our steps. We can track our heart rate. We can track our calories with MyFitnessPal. I think people are starting to see the potential here. On the other side of that, specific to health and fitness, a lot of people are having issues. In fact, I have a question from a listener to the show. His name is Bart. And he said, I'm into wearables, but I recently stopped wearing mine because I couldn't figure out what to do with the data. Also, the heart rate info seemed totally arbitrary. So would be curious about how Chris was able to actually use the info. 
It is arbitrary. And I think, yeah, I feel, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of studies where people start using the technology and then they stop. But we did the same thing with the internet in the 90s. We used it and then stopped, used it. And so we didn't really know what it was for. So for me, I think, you know, if you're, if you have the technology and you're not using it because you don't know what to use it for, you've got a good reason. We don't know. But the other thing is there's nothing wrong with using it and not knowing how you're going to use it. We, we actually use money that way. Um, <laughs> and I think it's so important to really, at, at this juncture in history, you know, take a look at, you know, some of the deeper questions around this sort of stuff. You know, how did I use it? You know, for me, so much of my day-to-day behavior, we just stick with simple things like steps and sleep, which activity trackers do really well. I had no idea. I mean, I had a feeling, but I had no idea. And there were days that I thought I, you know, were, was pretty active and wasn't. And then, you know, my first sensors didn't have full-time heart rate. I had to wear a chest strap for that. But my, so my early sensors had galvanic skin response, the body media. You know, and that was interesting because, you know, I didn't need to be, sometimes I was being active by just cleaning the house. And, you know, you don't do a lot of steps when you're in a small place. So, you know, I understand that it's, it's, it's a hard nut to crack right now for a lot of people. And I empathize with, with folks. And I just say, you know, don't give up on it just because it's not giving you the answers you want right away. Not everything needs to be, I guess, instantly apparent. Uh, the journey to self-discovery is one that takes a lifetime. You know, not everything can be delivered by Google yet. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, man. And I agree with you. I actually don't use that many wearables. I use a chest strap when I do aerobic exercise to monitor my heart rate to make sure I'm exercising the proper range. I take my HRV in the morning to determine my physiological readiness because I'm like a person who has a tendency to do too much. And so that helps me either go for my workouts if my HRV is telling me I need to or to back off if I need to. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so don't give up on the technology if you get the data but don't know what to do with it. Can you... um, Well, yeah, I mean, because no one's really... I mean, everybody's different. I mean, every body, physical body is different. So, you know, if someone, you know, it depends. I mean, first off, the technology is really marketed to the worried well, right? So sick people aren't using this. We have devices for actual, you know, chronically ill people. But if you're a worried, you know, if you're someone who has the the time and the resources to buy a Fitbit, to your point earlier, maybe you should invest in a trainer. I mean, there's a certain amount of power that comes from actually interacting with people. I don't think the technology is quite where it needs to be still in 2016. But when I started in those 28, I mean, it was real obvious to me. And I just started saying, well, wait a minute, I, I, I need to understand it. So, you know, just creating an elaborate routine, which is, you know, who wants to go through? No one wants to be the world's most connected man to get healthy. It's stupid. But that's what I had to do. I was hard searching the internet in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why people are fascinated by your story, because you're a pioneer. You're someone who's taking things that were available and did it to you. You just did it up, man. You went for it. And I've, <laughs> I've had guys like Dave Asprey on here who markets himself as a biohacker and talks about self-quantification. But man, he didn't do what you did. And what you did is, uh, I mean, it's special and it, it paints a picture of what's possible. Maybe it's overkill. Maybe it's, maybe like you said, it's not what we should go and do. No, but- no, because it, you know, it, it left me, you know, somewhat broken. Technology isn't amazing. And, you know, Tim Ferriss is really kind of like kind of pioneer version one for kind of this biohacking kind of new media world. I say Dave, I met Dave at, you know, 2011 at a QS conference at Stanford. You know, I'd say he's kind of version two, you know, and if you look at some of the people who've come out after that, I think they're all kind of iterations of the same thing, but I still kind of struggle with some of the terminology. So even the idea of body hacking, I mean, we're not code, we're not computers. So I understand that you can manipulate yourself, but I think you should say that. I think you should say manipulate. The minute we start kind of comparing ourselves to machinery, we're kind of raising one and, and lowering the other. And that's a really slippery, slippery soap. So I just want to stick that in there. I don't think everyone should be trying to hack their bodies. Okay. Manipulating doesn't sound nearly as cool, but... I, no, I it totally, doesn't, but it's much more accurate. I totally understand where you're coming from. And let's not wait any longer because I know this, I kind of feel like this you have something to say. So no, 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 I just, so I have, you know, I just shot the special for Showtime and I think people are going to be really freaked out when they see it because, you know, 
I, I paint it as a pretty like desolate, lonely, sad person. And, you know, I think one of the side effects that technology has yet to show, except for, you know, it's coming out every day more and more, that it is leaving people slightly isolated. It is leaving people slightly lost. And only because technology has the ability to create what we call phenomenality. And phenomenality is the belief that what you see and perceive is real. And, you know, we live in a world where YouTube videos are edited very quickly. So everyone talks like an edited YouTube video. People don't worry about looking good because they can put a, f a filter on their photo. People don't worry about reading because they can get it in 140 characters. This is kind of a, an interesting time we're in because I think a lot of people are suffering. And they might not talk about depression. They might not talk about anxiety, but they're feeling it. And this, this relentless obsolescence that we're met with every day because of technological achievement and advancement is real. It is deadly real. And I don't know anybody at any level who's not feeling the pinch. And I think it's an important dialogue to have. And I think it needs to happen now. Okay. Well, can you explain that a bit further? So obsolescence, explain what you mean by that and explain your perspective on the negatives of technology. Because it's a little interesting that it's coming from you because you've been able to lose 100 pounds and do some great things with technology, but yet you also have this other perspective. So please. Yes. So I benefited greatly from the very things you're talking about. So people do struggle when they hear me speak and hear some of this. But I wouldn't be the first person to have regret over something that brought me great fortune or great attention. The new movie uh, about the economic collapse. Uh, what is it? The Big, the big Short? That whole movie is about people who made billions of dollars and felt guilty about it. So I guess for me, when I look at people and behavior today, technology's done some amazing things. It's allowed us to connect. You and I could find each other online very easily. But it also allows people to kind of binge watch friendships and binge watch relationships. And so often I don't think people are used to at this point the idea of being put on hold while someone goes off for a few months and does their life and then comes back and catches up on reruns of your life via the five different services you use. So I think that's kind of a psychological thing that we're still coming to terms with because we all know what it feels like to be watched or studied. And then, you know, who hasn't had someone say, oh, I noticed a few months ago you were having a hard time. How are you doing? And they never talk to you. They just, you know, they just read an update and found a more convenient time to chat with you. And this idea that we can put people on kind of mental pauses is interesting. That's the mind. As we move to the body and we put on wearable tech, whether you're healthy or not, we start to go, hmm, I'm going to put the body on hold for a moment <laughs> or a day or a week because I understand enough about my physiology that I can just you know, put a big pause button on my diet and behavior and come back to it. These are very delicate early matters that I'm not sure as a species we understand the full implications of yet. Because we haven't really kind of finished off with just dealing with, wow, we can grow our own food and feed a lot of people. I mean, we haven't even got that right. So I don't know. I understand it's hard. But as a human, I think I, I struggle to convince people that I can have two opinions at the same time that don't agree with each other. I actually do understand. At least I think I do. Part of it, I mean, isn't it our 21st century ideals that we're impressing upon humanity. And if you look back in history, it's a pretty dark history for the most part. A lot of it's uh, violent and based on wars and conquering territory. And then we're living in this world now where at least Steven Pinker says in his TED Talk how violence is, you know, it's never been lower. Your chances of dying at the hands of a, a, another human being have never been lower. And But we seem to be unhappy about it, unhappy about our lives, we have this existential angst, and it seems like technology can amplify that and exacerbate it for some people. So what's the answer? Where do you see things going, and how do we correct them to make them right with our, with our, our primitive programming? Yeah. yeah it was, I think it was E.O. Wilson said something, you know, we have you know, godlike technology and you know, primitive emotions. Medieval institutions and primitive emotions. Well, what are some of the things that concern you about technology and humanity and perhaps some of the abuses that corporations or, or governments will yeah, do so, with all the data? 
yeah. So I think that's 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 a little bit easier to that's a little bit easier to get my head around. So first off, we need to just kind of take responsibility for our own behavior before we start pointing fingers at the world. And I think some of that is easy to start to def- understand if we look at how we use any system. And some of the first systems that we started abusing involved saving our time. I mean, you know, they usually came in the form of productivity hacks of, and software in the 90s. And then in the, in the early 2000s, it was internet shopping. And I always tell people anytime, actually, I was when, during my Q&A in, in New York, and Michael Moore was sitting in the audience, and someone asked that same question. And I said, you know, anytime you go to touch a piece of technology, ask yourself one question. Are you going to save time? And if the answer is yes, then say, what is the cost of saving time? Because nothing's for free. So if there's some system or somebody, including yourself, that could be potentially hurt by saving time, think twice. For example, you go to Walgreens. Someone, they say, do you have your, your, your loyalty card? You say yes, and you push in your phone number, and you walk out, no big deal, you saved your 10 cents on toothpaste. But in reality, <laughs> you saved some money, right, which is time, money is time. But what you handed them was so much more valuable. You handed them when you bought toothpaste, what else you bought with toothpaste, because you also get your pharmacy at uh, Walgreens, you, you handed them all the prescriptions tied to the fact that you use that type of toothpaste. And because that value card in their application is tied to the accelerometer on your phone, you also handed them your behavior for the last 24 hours. So yeah, you saved 10 cents at the grocery store, or you saved a dollar at Walgreens, but what you gave them was so much more valuable. So I think you know, that's a really simple little life hack. What am I giving away to save money or time is usually a really good indicator because none of us are getting rich. None of us are getting out quick, and we're all kind of in this boat together. So if we don't individually start thinking and making more conscious and deliberate decisions and having conversations about our time and our money and our resources and our attention, then we're kinda, it's just going to keep getting worse. Companies, unfortunately, are not people unless you're the Supreme Court. And companies' abilities to function rely on our behavior. You know, seven of the top 10 Fortune 5 companies have large portions of their income, which are completely derived from behavior information. I mean, Facebook is nothing more than a behavior scraping engine to serve you new ads. Google's the same way. And that's fine, you know, if something's free, you're the product. But if everything's free, you're the platform. And I think turning populations of people into platforms is a place where we might need to like say, whoa, hold on, big business. I think this is a good idea. And, you know, that'll be good. But, you know, like just an NPR the other day, you know, well, if we hooked everything up to the Internet, we could optimize the business so much better and speed products to people more. You know, that's assuming we also have jobs. Right. So I just think we're just we're in this kind of nether region right now where time and technology are good things, to your point. I mean, there are people in third world nations and second world nations and even first world nations who are benefiting from it. They're making money. They're getting healthier. Their lives are moving better. You know, Dean Kamen is a genius of what he's done with technology, with the with uh, water. Bill Gates is, is a genius. with the, But, you know, there are people who thought about large problems and applied technology to them and not thought about large populations and applied data to technology. It's just which way the business is pointing that, that, that filter. And I, I'm probably just meandering through something, but I hope it makes sense to someone listening. Yeah. Well, I had this conversation yesterday. Uh, of course, this hundredth interview. The 100th monkey effect. <laughs> the 100th monkey effect. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I, I had this conversation yesterday, and this, this uh, interview will go out in a couple weeks. But I was talking to one of my clients, and I, I work with a bunch of successful people here in, in Miami Beach. And he was saying, I have a more optimistic view of technology because I did feel lonely and disconnected. And through technology, I've been able to create real relationships where I actually <laughs> meet that person in, at conferences and podcasting. And I, and I have this whole thing going on. So that's how it starts out though. <laughs> it's a slippery slope, huh, it Chris? Looks, it looks very real, but the, the reality is you and I will probably stay connected digitally after this. And we'll just periodically peer into each other's lives. Of in course. any other circumstance, that would be called you know, a peeping Tom or stalking or surveillance. And I just think, again, I have to go back to my own personal experience. I couldn't handle Facebook that way. I noticed that all I was doing was catching up on my friends. I noticed that when my friends would connect to me on my Fitbit, I wasn't, you know, I was looking more to see, you know, were they healthy? Were they staying busy? Were they staying, were they inactive and not sleeping? 
you know, I didn't use that information. I didn't do anything good with what I learned about those people. And that's not technology's fault. That's my fault. Right. But technology could be designed in such a way that it facilitated more intimate connections around the very, very private behavioral information that we share every day online. And it's just not designed that way right now. I understand. Right. You got to kind of go out of your way. Really out of way. Really out of your way. Okay. You could text from inside Fitbit and you're like, hey, Ted, how you doing? I was just thinking about you when I noticed that this is your third. You know, Fitbit should say, hey, your friend Ted has been, you know, at home and hardly moving for three days. You should see how he's he's doing. Right. Right? Okay. Your friend Donna, who posts selfies every single day, hasn't posted anything in a week. She's probably not okay. Check on her. Yeah. This is, if you wanted human interaction, you would design for it. Right. Right. The, the phone is not a phone. We use it for data, not talk minutes. You know, iMessage has 18 ways to send a message to, to someone. Only one of them involves voice. I'm curious, Chris. Do you think <laughs> you're <laughs> – I understand the concepts that you're bringing forth. That's not my experience. But do you think that it's in part because you've been in IT and tech? And I've been in the gym helping people. And for me, like you said, oh, well, it starts off this way. It's this new cool thing and you start to use it. But is this because you've been behind the scenes for so long? I think in some ways, but even like, I don't know, I'm not part of gym culture, but like growing, you know, being 47 and growing up, you know, gym culture is a thing, you know, people who find and get healthy and then stay radically healthy and it becomes their life. And we all know that person who starts running and then just becomes the runner. And I don't think it's any different for technology. And, and there's no shame in these things as long as I think they're used and they're used in such a way that, that builds community. If you, you know, become a gym person and then get involved in gym culture and your life then revolves around those types of people, that's fine. But keep in mind, you then say no to everyone who's not in gym culture. You then say no to everyone who's not in tech life. I mean, the reason older people are getting their own social networks now isn't because they're suddenly realizing how lonely they are. It's because no one will talk to them. Hmm. And, you know, for every positive change we make in our lives, we have to leave something behind. That is the very nature of change. Change is an addition. It's addition and subtraction. It's what it is. And... I don't know why this is difficult sometimes for me to even talk about because I get really stressed. But I think only because for my own, well, I know why. Because of my own experience, you'll see you know, on, the, on the TV special, is like, oh, wow, you're right. My life is substantially better in every way possible. Except it's pretty weird because I got so used to technology doing everything for me that I really didn't need that many people. Right. So you, you've had to go out and... Right. There wasn't that pressure to go out or motivation to go out and connect with people. I I get you. People are completely inefficient. Have you ever tried to schedule a meeting with someone? I mean, you can't ask a question without someone auto-completing your answer. I mean, we've been rewired, you know, through neuroplasticity by algorithms to anticipate things at a level that's unprecedented. You can feel the anxiety looking in someone's eyes and having a conversation with them. I'm not out of my mind. People listening to your show know what I'm talking about. This is really simple. We spend our time staring at screens. Screens spend their time trying to keep our attention. Any any other relationship, we'd call this marriage. But now we're just married to this limbic system of kind of conditioned response. I mean, I'd love to know Jason Silva's response on this. I mean, he's very pro, you know, this brave new world. But, you know, I'm not sure how much he's actually lived in it. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I've seen his videos. He'll be on the show. He's traveling quite a bit. So it's been hard to lock him down for an interview. But he's definitely going to be on the show. I will ask him about that. But interesting that you bring this up because I've seen him talk about how he goes out of his way to disconnect. And I feel like we are in this world, we're wired into our phones, our Facebook, the social media, we're wired into our jobs, we're wired into the day-to-day banality of, of most of, well, of life. And if we don't make a concerted effort to extract ourselves from it, to get perspective on what this whole thing means and what we're doing in our place in the world and what we're working towards. It's right. Let's talk about disconnecting. Sure. So I'm not going to, let's not pick on Jason anymore. Let's pick on, I don't know, Bill Gates. Okay. Um, 
So you always hear people say, you know, I disconnect. Think about the absolute absurdity of wealth you have to have to truly disconnect. I don't know. I've, ne- I've yet to meet in person anyone who can live without the Internet. Everybody I know is tethered to some system or process they require to function because the time it would take to do it like we did it five years ago would be, would be crippling to them. So, you know, people who tell me they disconnect, you know, a lot of companies now have disconnection policies. Really, I mean, I, I want middle America to tell me that they have time to disconnect, that they feel they can, that they feel their job will still be safe. I think there's a, there's a big, big red, you know, scary looking monster in the room around disconnection, because once you have the resources to disconnect, you really don't relate to the population that you want to disconnect from. Okay. I'm not sure I mean, if I fully understand what you said, the you, last you, part there. Yeah, you got to have money to unplug. I, I understand that. And you're bringing up something so important right now because not only, right, if I didn't have the type of lifestyle that I created for myself with me, I, I mean, I'm no Bill Gates or I'm, I'm doing all right here in Miami Beach, but if I didn't create the type of lifestyle where I'm in charge of how I spend my time, it would be very difficult for me to disconnect and I want to disconnect more. And I know to do that, I will have to, right. I will have to improve the amount of income. I'll I'll have to make more money. And what you're saying here is people who are fortunate, who have figured out the economics game and how to afford their freedom Mm. will be fine. But what about the people who are just dialed in and they can't afford it? It's a great question. And well, again, I, well, why aren't we talking about me? Why aren't we talking about that? in the you know, why aren't our Ray Kurzweil's talking about that? Why aren't our social leaders talking about, you know, what it would take to actually be a digital prepper or, or you know, a technical Amish? There's nothing wrong with technology. There's just at a point where we have to go, are we relying on it so much that we couldn't function without it? You know, I have hue lights all over my house. It's just Wi-Fi lighting. I use it to control all sorts of fun little things. But, you know, their Hue Lighting had a, an update last year. And if you go back to the Philips Hue Twitter feed, their, their most popular tweet last year was they had to tell people when their firmware failed to use light switches. People had been on Hue Lights for two years, and some of them had forgotten where the switches were in their house. <laughs> so it's kind of like when the power goes out and you have to remember the fuse for the breaker box, but like at a much simpler scale. And over the next four years, this is going to become, as the Internet of Things becomes more prevalent in our homes much more important. So let's drop down another level. Everything we have now, we can talk to. I can talk to my phone. Hey, Siri, right? I can talk to Amazon Echo. Hello, Alexa. I can talk to Google. Okay, Google. Hey, Cortana. So no one's, I've yet to see the kind of discourse around that that I think should be. And that's when we talk to our machines, we actually are giving away any choice we have and what they give back to us. When you search for something on the internet or you search for something on Facebook, you search for something in any digital system manually, you're giving a list of things to pick from. When you talk to a solution, you're only getting one solution back, right? Yeah. And these developers and these software companies, you know, GE just you know, closing their office and moving to Boston now, they're all scared to death because what happens is the interface to technology is becoming locked down in these portals, either through AI or through behavior. And getting to what I call the inner net, that's the space between you and the world around you, is getting increasingly difficult for your friends, for other products. And, and that's really where the sense of isolation and, and probably the sense of fear that people are feeling is because, wow, I don't have any choices. You know, if you got bad directions from a gas station 10 years ago looking for something, you got bad directions, you laughed about it, you got a little stressed out. You get bad directions now, you know, in a car, there are four of you on a GPS all going crazy. You know, it's just none of you are talking to each other. You're certainly not looking out the window. There's just a certain amount of kind of gravitas that I think is missing from the dialogue. And, you know, I just might be a, you know, chicken little, but that's where I am today. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I think people like you are important. Douglas Rushkoff has brought up a lot of the points that you've made here. And uh, he also is very concerned about, like you mentioned, the future of work. There's a great series on, I believe it's the Pacific Standard, on the future of work and what it means to the people who have jobs now that will be obsolete in five or 10 years. And what are those people going to do? The World Economic Forum. I mean, we're recording this in January. You know, the World Economic Forum, end of January, the World Economic Forum last week said that 
you know, we're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution and that most of the, how what we understand work to be in the next five to 10 years will be radically different. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how much more of a hint do we need? I mean, all the political solutions and candidates in the world, they're just talking about shutting down the internet to control terrorism. Really, how does a world with all the, with the fourth economic revolution work where politicians are shutting down parts of it? Douglas Rushkoff is a genius in our time. I think somewhat misunderstood. But if you really want to understand the future, you only need to read his book, Present Shock, and another book called The Circle, which is a piece of fiction, but not for some people. And, you know, The Circle and, and, and Present Shock are, should tell you everything you need to know to at least raise kids if you're not, you know, if you've kind of given up on yourself. Interesting. I'll have those books in the, the show notes so people can check them out if they'd like. I'll also reach out to Douglas and ask him to be on the show. I'm, I'm very curious. Please do. He's, he's genius. Yeah. And maybe you can connect us. I, I would love to interview him. Not I've actually, I can connect you. I read his book. I think it was Mind Virus. I read a couple of his books in, I guess, the early 2000s or maybe even the late 90s. And I really in, enjoyed it. And then I haven't read anything from a, from him in a while. And he's been putting out so much great info or so many books. Uh, and I watched him and Jason Silva debate about technology. And it was no fascinating. Way. That, would be, that would be epic. Well, it's already happened. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that would be epic to see. I would just, yeah. Yeah, I'll I mean, put that up on the show notes as well. It's a great conversation. Yeah, because, you know, Rush, Douglas is really kind of, you know, he's the end of the counterculture and the beginning of the cyberculture. Whereas, you know, Jason, in my opinion, is very much smacks, you know, he's Ray Kurzweil Jr. with better editing. And that's an important message. And, and I think a lot of people, I mean, I love Jason. I met him at the Lincoln Center first time three or four years ago for something called Global Future 2045 by a Russian oligarch billionaire who brought people together to say, hey, make me live forever. Again, if you can rent out the Lincoln Center to get a few people together and just invite the coolest people, you probably have too much money, not too much life. Um, <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, Jason's an important figurehead for people to understand technology and the potentiality of it. I just, I think there's a little bit more, but you know, it doesn't sell books to say that, you know, food wasn't popular once we labeled it. So no one wants to go there yet with technology. I gotcha. Well, listen, let me ask this question from sure. a listener. Nathan asked, were there any health complications from the hardware or the, the electromagnetic mm -hmm. fields mm -hmm. or anything like that? Yeah, I've been asked that before, not often. Uh, so it's very, you've got some uh, astute questions from your listeners. Not that I've seen yet. I mean, I've had rashes and things just because you were technology all over your body. It's like, you know, it's pretty, it can get pretty invasive. But nothing I've seen yet. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we, we don't know what we're doing with any of this stuff. I mean, just, just the full-time heart rate sensor. I've got three of them that I wear, you know just that light beaming into my blood every few seconds now. And that's been three of those sensors for over a year. I mean, who knows what any of that's going to do. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Nathan is part of the fitness industry, as I am. And that's been something that's been said for the past, I don't know, 15 years about electromagnetic fields. And it's hard to tell which way it's going to go. The whole idea of non-ionizing radiation not being, or, or we know that it's not dangerous in small doses, but once you just put it everywhere and you're around it all the time, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays a part in our health and whether there are some technology adjustments that need to be made. Chris, let's get into your book, man, because I, I, read that recently that you're writing a book. Definitely not mm -hmm. surprised to hear that. What's your book going to be about? It's part memoir, part kind of how-to guide. You know, I'm right in the midst of it right now. I think it'll really be up to whatever the literary agents and those types of folks decide how and where they want to focus. You know, I don't know. I mean, so often much of the last six years, well, four years since I accidentally showed up in the media. I was just at a conference and someone asked me about something and then there was a writer from Wired in the audience and the rest was, you know, kind of weird. They happened to me. I have to be careful because every now and then, like where I am, is just a little bit in front of where what people are comfortable talking about. I mean, most of the news about me is, is over two years old. Yet, you know, there's always this kind of resurgence. And the news from two years ago, that news was like two years old then, you know, if you go back to the earliest Bloomberg stuff. So, you know... I know. For me, I'd really like to write about the intersection of technology and, and contemplation and spirituality. But the, if I want to do it, that probably means it's too soon. 
<laughs> well, I, I heard recently on a keynote by Tim Chang, who's like the creative director at the Mayfield Group in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. He was talking about how there's a wellness revolution going on right now, how 80s was concerned about the bodybuilding and 90s. We started was the decade of the brain and we started changing. We, we started learning all these new things about the brain and how it worked in the 2000s. And now we're in this realm where technology is at the point where it's starting to not only affect our health and, and or be able to affect our health in positive ways, but also he believes that we're going to see things. He, he called it spirit tech, if I remember correctly. And mm -hmm. if I got that wrong, forgive mm -hmm. me. Yeah, it's a fascinating idea. What do you mean when you talk about this intersection of spirituality and technology? It's interesting because Mayfield is a pretty, pretty influential group. You know, Ray Kurzweil had a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines after he had, you know, his other books about the singularity. You know, and there's always this, this kind of nod to kind of the sentience that computers end up having. But what I find in my own practice, and I'm a Buddhist for about three years now and uh, practice, you know, several hours a week with a group and several more hours on my own, is technology creates a feedback loop that either directs us or, or, or informs us or, you know, manipulates us in some way. But ultimately, that, that feedback loop can be used to illuminate different states of awareness. The most basic example of this that most people have come in contact would be would be Facebook's year in review and then Facebook's day in review. So each day Facebook will push you with something and say, this is what you did last year and what you did before. And that's a really good example of technology kind of using a temporal trigger to say, look at your life moving. And what I found in some of my friends that I've talked to and people that I've asked, because I'm no researcher by any stretch of the imagination, when I ask them how they use that, is they often assign this this almost spiritual meaning to, God, it was exactly two years ago today when this happened. Isn't it weird? You know, and then X, Y, Z. Sure. So, so I think there's a very natural tendency of the human mind to lend itself to a belief in magic. Absolutely. And, mag <laughs> and magic. Magic just, and the, uh, yes. Yep. Absolutely. Something bigger than ourselves. Yep. And magic is just open source religion. Right. So religion is kind of the, the, the code, you know, depending on who the developer is of that. But magic is like the pure essence. It's just open source. Anyone can mess with it. And I think techno-paganism is one of these fields that you're, we're starting to see emerge out of all of this. It's, you know, what happens when you get the biohackers and the transhumanists and the cyborgs and the AI people and the, the body hackers, you know, all these people together and say, you know, what is it you're trying to do? And they're all trying to, I think, in some way change their relationship with their own awareness. Technology, again, is the fastest route to this because it is so hyper-manipulative. So, you know, you take pictures with your phone every day. There's nothing not saying you couldn't re-present pictures to someone based on behavior. Days when you're not active, you could see photos organized on your phone by active days. Why can't you search for information by behavior type? I mean, my Apple Watch knows my heartbeat for every single transaction. Why can't I see transactions that I bought excited? Mm. I mean... The ability to change our relationship with information is well beyond our ability to understand the profound implications of so. And I do worry, again, that I don't see any people talking about the ethics and morality, much less the spirituality, of the onslaught of information. You know, big data is a lot different than big wisdom. And to get to wisdom, you have to go from data to information to knowledge before you get to wisdom. And these are, again, our conversations missing from our, from our populace. Wow. It's going to be interesting to see, and I'll tell you, I'm, it's really been a pleasure to have you on the show, and I feel like we brought up so many more questions than answered today, but I would love to have you back on to catch up and just to see where you're at with technology, where, where you're at with your book. Am I still lonely? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I watched The Dark Net, the first episode. I haven't seen your episode because it's not out yet at the time of this recording. But you know what? In that episode, there's these Japanese guys who all date this online, like virtual female named Rinko. And mm -hmm. there was a, a documentary about 10 years ago with real dolls. Are, are you familiar mm -hmm. with that? Did you see that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm from, I remember. <laughs> I'm old enough. I remember this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, 
it's it seems that the technology may be okay so real dolls i mean the people who were in that documentary it was it was all men and it was pretty sad to see and you know a surrogate's a surrogate is a surrogate whether it's a rubber doll or a silicon doll and we love to have surrogates well when we we don't have the skills or we don't have the I don't know if we don't have the ability to create those connections yeah. with other people. Maybe technology is exacerbating that, but it's definitely a human problem. Well, yeah. I mean, just looking at just the breadth of human, you know, kind of human existence, you know, the domestication of animals took centuries. Putting tools on those animals took decades. Working with, with crops and lands and seeds took, you know, five, 15 years to really manage that out. Genetically modified stuff happened in just, you know, three, four years. We just jumped right over that hurdle. So what's happening is it's not so much that technology is ruining us or making us worse, but our ability to adapt to change is literally limited by the fact that we can only think so fast and do so much. Right now, you know, if you just take Facebook, for example, Facebook has the ability to change something on there in it. And you know, a couple billion people have to go, oh, that's different and get used to it like that. Being in an IT shop, you know, for over 25 years now, I can tell you that you roll out changes over weeks <laughs> just because everyone's work gets disrupted. If you ever owned a business, ask someone, what happens when you change the register? Everyone freaks out, right? But we now freak out people on a daily basis, not over one system, over all systems. So it, it's just, just, I think it's just the amount of change we can handle right now. And you know, is it really kind of time to slow that down? I mean, or just make it less apparent and not brag about it so much? You know, we, the $6 million man was cool because he was alone. Right. It, it wouldn't have been cool if there'd been 100 of them. There wouldn't have been a TV show. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris Dancy, <laughs> you bring up some great points and would love to have you back on the show to discuss this further. If you want to find out more about Chris Dancy, go to chrisdancy.com. Or you can literally Google most connected man. <laughs> yeah, right. And and there will be a ton of stuff that pops up. But definitely check out The Dark Net on Showtime. I'm watching it on Hulu. I'm a streamer. I'll, I'll probably never have cable again at this <laughs> point. But definitely check it out and be aware of the changes that are going on. And Chris, thank you so much for coming on today and and bring up your perspective and your knowledge and your wisdom about what your experience has been and what you've seen behind the scenes. I, I really appreciate that. Oh, Ted, you know, so, so many people will ask me questions and interview me, but very few of them actually take times to read anything or understand what my values are. I'm just so honored and grateful that you took the time to think of thoughtful questions and, and do some research. And I just want to say that's really, really special. And I appreciate that. Well, Chris, uh, I appreciate you and I appreciate what you're doing. And how about some final words for the listeners? Move slow, be kind. It'll be okay. All right. That's a wrap. Chris Dancy, thanks so much for your time. And man, I, I can't wait to connect with you again. Thanks, Ted. 